This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r 102.7 fm Welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, Triple R's weekly discussion on the repercussions of humanity's collective concussion. Bush is my name and I'm in the studio as always with the deeply magnificent and very splendid Adam Grubb. How are you, Adam? I'm having a bit of an existential Tuesday, but I'm all right. <laughs> okay. This existential Tuesday didn't start off uh, deep into the nuts of Saturday night, did it? Not one of, not one of those Tuesdays. Maybe. A super... Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to have one, but no, I've come yeah. good. It's good. How'd you like my dope rhymes at the top there? I've been listening to oh, lots of hip-hop. Great, man. It was, yeah. it was delivered with a kind of understated ease. Mm. Yeah, confident ease. I'll come back to why I'm so understated later on in the show. I've had a very relaxing few days. Uh, Katie Dundas, also magnificently splendid, <laughs> is in the studio. How are you, Katie? But I'm very well. Awesome. Yes, a little bit hectic. feel a little bit like I'm trying to catch up with myself, but... Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's a little like that at the moment. Must be the sunshine. Uh, and returning to the switches and the buttons and the sliders and the general gentlemanly panel gesticulations is magnificent Jed McCartney, who doesn't have a mic in front of him tonight because we've got a full studio. And uh, maybe, Adam, you would like to, to introduce our guest this evening. Yes, we're going to jump straight into it. We have a return guest, three time return guest. Is that a record? I think it could be. Congratulations, so. Dr. Samuel Alexander, um, who is the founder of the Simplicity Institute, which is an educational research group which envisions a simpler way of life, one that doesn't fuck the world up quite so rapidly, but is quite pleasant style of living. I didn't copy that directly from your website. Um, he's a research fellow with the Melbourne Sustainability Institute and a lecturer at Melbourne Uni at the Office of Environment environmental programs and since he's been on the show he's written two more books um to add to his already uh impressive bookcase filled with his own publications um include and they are just as enough as plenty thoreau's alternative economics and deface the currency the lost dialogues of diogenes and his latest project is called the dark sellers project in which artists submit images that make the messages of voluntary simplicity a bit more visual and uh emotionally engaging and that is the topic which we're going to talk about tonight, how to make environmental messages uh, a little bit more visceral. Anyway, welcome to the show, Good Dr. Sam. Thank you. No worries. You're a bit like the Frank Zappa, when in Frank Zappa's productivity. It's quite amazing. <laughs> when Adam said, I think you've knocked out another two books, I thought, God, Zappa, Zappa would love that. <laughs> Thoreau, had, uh, he once said that he had 700, oh, 1,000 books on his... Uh, in his bookshelf, 700 of which he wrote. So, uh, but there was the people not buying his books oh, that okay. he had to pay for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he finally did have a breakthrough. 
with yeah, Baldwin. He was, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we might even talk about that later in the show, but why don't we start with this... Um, Let's talk about environmental advocacy in, you know, uh, to use the what's be- rapidly become a cliche, a post-truth era. What's got you thinking about that topic, Sam? Sure. Look, I think um, one of the long-running critiques of the environmental movement has been that it's perhaps been a bit... Uh, rationalistic in its modes of communication it's sort of trusted that if you study the world uh, analyze the data publish the reports the public is going to digest them and change their views accordingly the politicians will read the science shape their policy accordingly and will resolve the environmental predicament now I think that's an essential part of the environmental advocates role but um, if we just rely on that um well you know i think it's been a failure of the environmental movement to not explore alternative ways of getting the message out so i guess that's kind of driving this project is to recognize that it's not just what you say but also how you say it it's very important and i think the um different parts of the culture different political uh, sensibilities have been better at that than the environmental movement to date. So it's been a mm. failure of the environmental movement that, and it potentially if it's able to uh, rethink its communication strategies, or perhaps it needs to rethink its communication strategies in order to be more effective. Can mm. you give us an example of an effective strategy? Well, I guess it's exploring a mode of communication other than the purely rationalistic. So what's worked for other movements? Well, if we look to the political right... In Australia, for example, um, you know, Tony Abbott's famously just kept shouting "axe the tax" as a mode of communication. It wasn't a sophisticated mode. It wasn't a sophisticated argument, <laughs> but in an age of Twitter, it was a soundbite that got repeated. And when uh, people on the other side of the political spectrum who were trying to articulate a more sophisticated and nuanced defence of uh, pricing climate, uh, pricing carbon, um, pretty quickly. The, the, move, the news segment moved on and it was more or less ignored. So in this cultural climate to, to just rely on the more developed articulation of the points is problematic. So I need to find something to shout, some three-lettered slogan. I think it's recognising that you need to explore various ways of communicating, and including image. Um, you know, there's the Canadian... Um, magazine Adbusters, which essentially uses the tools of marketing and advertising to undermine the culture that marketing and advertising has produced. They use the phrase culture jamming, which is one way, as I say, to um, to explore this alternative mode of communication. And interestingly, it was Adbusters that branded Occupy. So the closest thing we've mm. gotten to a global revolution in the last few decades has been a movement branded by a essentially an, a, a marketing agency adbusters mm. now adbusters didn't create the sentiment that gave rise to occupy but they gave it a snazzy uh, branding which was able to mobilize mm. a a significant movement so there's something uh, inherently complex in um, ecological systems, as there is within energy systems and ecological uh, economic systems. So, when you're trying to fight against the powers that are damaging those systems or exploiting those systems, you're trying to get the public to jump in 
understand very complex things, the interaction of different ecological systems, everything, and they're coming face-to-face with something like drink Coke and you'll get chicks or put this petrol in your car. And So the advertising and the PR uh, people have a ridiculous advantage in what they're trying to sell is really stripped back and raw. And I remember thinking this years ago when I started to find out more and more stuff about climate change and things like that, that maybe that shouldn't be the main flagship um, message of the environmental movement so early. Maybe you need to say to people, go and look at your local rivers, your local beaches, they're polluted. Go and, you know, smell the air, it's dirty, things like that. Draw it back into something far more simple, tangible, that you can see and you can touch and you can feel, Mm. rather than climate change, which even as it's unfolding, is still a bit abstract and there's there's all these different things feeding into it. Do you think um, that the, the PR machine behind environmentalism, if indeed there is one, is perhaps sometimes working with something just far too complicated to give it that pizzazz, that, you know, drink Coke, you know, drive fast kind mm. of thing? Mm. Look, it is complicated, but I think uh, there is a need to try to present it in as digestible ways as possible I and, agree. you know like lock the gate has is an example of a environmental movement that has i think shown some political intelligence in the way that they've gone about their business they've sort of gone and approached parts of the australian culture that may not be instinctively ready to take on the climate change argument but uh, approach them not Leading with climate change, but mm. leading with say land rights, land, yeah. land issues, the water sense of safety, libertarianism, and individual freedoms. Yeah, gets tapped into there, and and you get people on board, and then later the envir- the, the the environmental impacts, the climate impacts, uh, get taken notice of, mm. and so I think that shows that perhaps some of the issues that we're talking about are beginning to be taken on board. Could, yeah. could you just remind listeners what lock the gate is? A, so- a social movement that's trying to mobilise. Um, an anti-fracking um, m- movement in, in Australia. Yeah. And it's attracted support from a broad range of different types of people and different types of backgrounds. Sure. So a lot of interesting support compared to other types of movements. Yeah, mm. and I think that's because of a more sophisticated communication strategy. Yeah. yeah, and they don't lead with climate change as the big issue either, do they? Mm. Mm. No. Um, you know, all this makes me think that if, if you've got truth on your side... And you look, you're, you're there looking at the facts and you're going like, well, we just have to present those. You're almost putting yourself at an inherent, you know, that naivety um, puts you at a disadvantage. Whereas if you're a climate denier, which not to say, you know, not to put um, people down if, you know, that's where they're coming from. Because I've tried, you know, tried to look at both sides. It's a complicated issue. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there's such a massive weight of evidence towards um, anthropocentric climate change mm-hmm. that... Uh, if you're, let's say you're, a, let's say you're completely cynic. Let's say you're Exxon Mobil, who in the '70s knew climate change was real. They made a business decision to go about promoting it being um, not real. Mm-hmm. They're from the outset know that they're playing a propaganda game. If you're on the other side, you've got all the evidence. You're there. Um, you're distracted by that and not not getting into the um, methods which actually convince people. Do you think that could actually? be the case that the people who have the evidence might almost start with a disadvantage i guess it raises questions about what type of creature the human being is you know are we uh the the surveyor of the evidence the the rational being that tries to assess the best evidence and science and make a decision accordingly Mm. or are we more emotional in the way we form our opinions and you know i'm an academic so i have that 
biased toward the former. I, I would like to think that, you know, when you spend a significant amount of time surveying the evidence, studying the world, mm. articulating arguments, testing it according to the scientific method, um, people will pay attention and to some extent that's, that's true, but I think we also are more emotional beings. I think you have to think about people's jobs and their emotional type and the personality type they have and potentially the type of people that end up in powerful political decision-making roles have a very different personality type than, say, you do, where you're a researcher, backer of science-type person. Naturally fascinated as well. I mean, having a natural fascination puts you at a disadvantage. I think sometimes. So if you're playing a power game and you're wanting to win that game, then the messaging doesn't necessarily, or the truth doesn't matter so much because you want to win. Yes, and I guess that's the that's the concern that's you know arising in the you know Trump being the the perfect example. You know, in the, to, to take a topical example in the. Mm. Debates. Sorry, Sam. We don't call him Trump here. We call him the Golden Merkin, and, the, the and golden, so we shall. The, the Golden Merkin, when he was debating Clinton, uh, you know, Clinton, irrespective of what you think of her politics, she would. Uh, she's incredibly experienced. She's articulate. She would present an argument and at least to attempt to back it up with with evidence. Mm. The, the the Golden Merkin would lean forward and say, "Wrong, complete lies, lies, complete lies." And then the media would ask, "Who won the debate?" And now, from an intellectual perspective, there's no question. Yeah. Clinton won the debate. She got an A. The Merkin got an F. Uh, but in another sense, who won the debate is a sociological question. Um, who was more persuasive? And as it turned out. Trump was. So mm. this is the world we are living in. Mm. Um, it's not just the content, or it's increasingly less to do with the content and more the form, how, how you say it. Yeah. We're talking about facing up to evidence. I mean, we live in an industrialised world. We're completely, for most of the days and most of, our, and most of our lives, separated from systems of ecology. Go back five, ten, or 20,000 years day-to-day people lived within an ecological system. So if the buffalo started to thin out, you had to accept that something was happening. You had to look at that and go, okay, well, maybe it's getting colder, so we need to move north or south, or uh, maybe we've overhunted these, so we need to move on, or or whatever. Mm. So evidence, I think, naturally does play a massive part in human decision-making, up to the point where where you're removed from so many of those inputs into your Mm. daily life. Mm. Is that Mm. where we're at? Is that the inherent struggle that we face now, is that we're trying to fight a battle for environmentalism while actually kind of being completely separate from it. I think so. And it, again, it points to the fact that we need to explore. Like, it would be silly to, you know, in a post-truth age, we don't just play by post-truth rules. We still mm. need to reinforce the importance of evidence and argument and logic yep. um, and make people accountable. Um, but it's also to recognise that in a post-truth age, things like image and uh, rhetoric and persuasion are important. To give Mm. one example, um, I was reading a New York Times article the other day um, and it was a photo essay of, uh, it was called The Dizzying Grandeur of Industrial Agriculture. And as I was looking through this, I saw this picture, you would have all seen similar pictures of this uh, square kilometres of pig farm where pigs are lying on their sides, locked into place with Mm. little piglets feeding off them. And, um, the, you know, the reason for that is that um, energy, uh, movement takes energy, yeah. so it's more efficient to basically not let, so it's an utter disregard of animal life in order to maximise profits. Yep. And that image tripped me up in a way that a book of evidence couldn't have, couldn't yeah. possibly have. And it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it speaks to the point that we are 
affective beings, emotional beings that, yes, we hope we will be open-minded and take account of the science and and the evidence, Mm. but also recognise that we are persuaded in other ways, more effective ways, more emotional ways. I also think that sometimes you suffer from visual fatigue. So I remember when I was at school, we used to see all these pictures of... um, African people looking starving and the first time you saw it it was really disturbing and the 15th time you saw it it was like oh yeah they're hungry yeah. it's a shame and it just loses, lost its effectiveness I, th- I think there's something could possibly even happen in that example that you gave where when you see thousands of pigs suffering um, it tends to be that humans respond in this person to person level or if, or if we take a pig you know like you saw us a single pig suffering, you might have a stronger emotional response than this huge intractable problem where it just, what, what is that phrase? Like, um, you know, uh, one person dead is a tragedy, a thousand is a statistic. statistic. Is that from yeah, Stalin? Yeah. Um, but that rings really true and there's even evidential um, evidential evidence <laughs> to back it up where people you ask people how much they're willing to give to charity when you tell them a story about a, a single starving kid what would you um, mm. to help them mm. and you you tell them the same story only now there's 15 kids and people will give more money to the single kid now what we're talking about in environmental problems like everything that we know and love is threatened by the clusterfuck of climate change and um, the sixth great extinction and pollution and energy descent and um, financial instability potentially you know all, all of like everything but there's just no way of doing the maths on that and feeling the emotional connection to it I, I i think you're right i think we left the question open but humans and i'm not putting myself above this like we respond um to emotions uh and we most of our rational mind is really a rationalization mind mm. we after the fact tell ourselves why we did something Search around for evidence that supports a view that we already hold. Exactly. And I think social media is a significant player here because, uh, you know, I I enjoy Twitter. You heard it first here. Because I get to choose the, um, you know, my favourite thinkers and then I get a sort of a selective news feed in a way that, you know, I don't get when I turn on the six o'clock news. But everybody's doing that and what there is a great risk of happening is you're feeding yourself a... It's kind of confirmation bias, mm. and uh, you know it's con- creating these these cultural well, subcultures mm. that are no longer able to talk to each other. Yeah, yeah it's so dangerous. It is. We think about that a lot on this show. It really, really is. What well, a time of our you know that such a specific time right mm. now with access to all of that information, and yet the access the information that we receive on a day to day basis is just confirming our own beliefs. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it brings home the importance of. Um, surrounding yourself with unlike-minded people sometimes. Mm. I have been popping into Fox News far often than I ever did before, Mm. partly to understand, because Trump isn't so much the problem. Mm. The deeper worry is the culture that allowed him to come to to power, and that's been decades in the making. Indeed. My my YouTube... um algorithm now thinks I vote One Nation like Andrew Bolt, follow <laughs> Trump, just because I keep going, all right, well, something happened here and I missed it. What was it? Um, yeah, so now I'm sort of slowly reverting back to like death metal and, and permaculture. 
I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. Adam, we're going to continue our talk with a wonderful Samuel Alexander. We're going to switch topics a bit there. What are we chatting about next? Yeah, so we've been having a bit of a chat about how we, what, what tactics to use uh, in the environment movement or just to make people to, and ourselves care about big picture issues in a post-truth era. And um, Sam's just written a book about Diogenes, the 30-year-old bastard of Greek philosophy. Uh, and... and uh, one of the founders of the cynic movement, correct? Mm-hmm. Do, you to, do you want to tell us a little bit about Diogenes? And, and he was he was very much a uh, he was a bit of a wandering beggar and a bit of a provocateur who made art like kind of stunts to draw attention. So he definitely he wrote, but he also did a um, he played with people's emotions and found yeah. other ways to connect, didn't he? So he and his father were embroiled in a scandal. They they minted coins for a living and they were sort of uh, exiled from their hometown for defacing the currency and that sort of initiated Diogenes' his life as a wandering beggar. He consulted the oracle at Delphi who, who gave him a riddle to face the currency but he interpreted that rather than um, defacing the physical currency but to deface the coin of currency so to speak to what, what does that mean is it like when you like um fold the five dollar note up and something rude happens or burn it or, or write all over what? it okay, okay. yeah uh, sorry just for the listeners at home adam what rude thing happened no no that's all right <laughs> well, we're moving on okay moving on. and uh so for him defacing the currency was an attempt to criticize the way economic valuation in particular conventional economic valuation and to try to provoke people into rethinking how important money and material things were to a good life and Diogenes lived a life of quite staggering material renunciation, he had a robe, he had a staff, he had a lantern, he had a bowl. It's a bit like you Adam. <laughs> I mean, the, he, the he modern was day Diogenes, pretty much homeless, right? He, he, he lived in a, in, a, in, a bath. A, in a bath, pretty no, much. I pushed it a bit further. Than me. Can I just ask a question? Did you make up? This might be a stupid question. Did you make up Diogenes, or is he some like person that existed in the past? <laughs> no, he was a he was a real real philosopher, a contemporary of uh, Plato and Socrates. He wrote um, a fair bit, but none of it survived. So, what I um, did in the book was to uh, take all of the snippets that. Have are available through sort of hearsay and try to turn it into. Well, was he supposed to have come across as a bit of a like a knob? <laughs> he was a bit of a knob, though, wasn't he? <laughs> was he? he well, in, in some ways, <laughs> yeah, a, 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 provocateur, really a provocateur. Sure, but with, with he the, says um, somewhere with the somewhere that it's. Um, it's good to have friends that bite you. So, you know, <laughs> if he was a knob, it was for a, it was well intentioned. <laughs> and he was known well, as the dog, and partly because he would bark and bite. Bark people. and bite, and um, there's a story of um, <laughs> him sort of uh, 
discussing the values of the simple life at a party and somebody yeah. was what some of the rich people were frustrated with his philosophizing so they threw some bones on the floor and said diogenes you dog go and eat those so he he did he because did. he didn't w- want to waste the, the yeah. chicken but then also since they were treating him like a dog he went and lifted his leg and urinated on him so uh, that's the type of but then he started wondering about marketplaces barking at people walking backwards being mean to children I'm not sure about that one. I'm not sure he was mean to children, was he? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't even know he existed five minutes ago. And you're, ma- you're scandalising him. I read his book last night. <laughs> Look, um, he, was, he, was, um, he, he, he wasn't expecting people to live like him, but he, was, he, 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 he loved life. He, he wanted to take his own life seriously, and yeah. he wanted other people to take their own lives seriously and to grasp their freedom and in a culture where he saw people dedicating uh, silly amounts of time to the pursuit of um, money and status and he was trying to provoke them to rethink those goals and to seek uh, a deeper, uh, richer life in a in a non-materialistic mm-hmm. way. Yeah. So, so he was a cynic which brings to mind um, a lack of values and just a generally negative attitude um, but the actual philosophical cynics um, but but at least um, going by Diogenes, seem to have had some uh, strong uh, moral values. Sure. That um, modern framing of the word cynic is actually a bit misleading because cynic, I won't try to do the Latin um, version, but it it means dog. Ah. So that's the the historical meaning. Right. Mm. Well, well, what what values... um, So you've mentioned um, simple living and renouncing material wealth. What, What did he value? Uh, he valued freedom and he valued contentment mm. and um, simple living, radical simple living was a manifestation of uh, trying to live those, live those values. He, one of his famous quotes is, um, I'm a citizen of the cosmos. And um, I guess that was his, in a sense, like uh, this is before anarchism became a political tradition, but he was in a sense anarchistic in, the, in, in that he wanted to encourage people to, to borrow Gandhi's words, be the change they wish to see, you know, live your values. Yep. Did he enjoy the ladies? Uh, the, as far as, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's not well documented. Well, I, I did notice that the cynics renounced um, power, wealth, um, and money. Oh, I said that. I don't know, there was four. But they included sex. And I did think, like, I could, you know, I could sort of handle the others, but maybe that's going too far. Adam needs the ladies. Hmm. Well, Diogenes famously uh, would masturbate in public. Um, but it, this, again, it, wasn't uh, gratuitous vulgarity. It was okay, a so philosophical he, culture jam. He, he, he was in a bathtub. He was basically... He barked like a dog. Yeah, and he masturbated in public. Come yeah, on. He was making a point that... Children. He was making a point that uh, the... the, the, the the materialistic mm. uh, people were essentially living shameless lives as explicitly, and he, he was he was yeah. just essentially reflecting their their morals. That was his point. Do not try this one, kids. <laughs> with this so the point of writing this book was to reflect upon the culture of today, was it? Uh, more Should or less. Should we all live like Diogenes? And no, get a and bath I, it wasn't stuff? his point either. His point was just to provoke thought on um, the uh, the uh, he. We couldn't use con- the phrase consumerism with respect mm. to his culture, but he was he he was calling into question materialistic ways of living, which yeah. is you know more relevant today than it was then. T- tell us briefly about his possibly apocryphal um, meeting with Alexander the Great, and also your telling of it. 
because because the book is written as a dialogue. Sure. Well, um, Alexander the Great, the richest and most powerful man in the world at the time, had heard about this great philosopher that people called Socrates gone mad, which uh, perhaps was a fitting description of him, mm. and approached Diogenes while he was sleeping, basking in the sun, and said, Diogenes, um, I am Alexander the Great, the richest and most powerful man in the world. Um, I, is there anything you want? Because tell me and I will provide. And Diogenes looked up at Alexander and said, can you please step out of my sunlight? Um, because ah. there was there was nothing else that Diogenes needed that he could could provide, and and the point of this um, story or the the point of Diogenes' words were that he was trying to get people to think about well who was freer, who was richer, who was wealthier. Was it Alexander who could provide anything, or was it Diogenes who had so little but was perfectly content with what he had? And you know the 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 point that he's trying to get us to think about was 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 diogenes the richer and the more powerful by being able to control his material material needs triple r not for everyone for anyone Yes, and Triple R is where you are, and Greening the Apocalypse is the program you are tuned to. We've been chatting for most of the show with Samuel Alexander, who is a prolific author and intellectual and pontificator and ponderer and um, all-round wonderful fellow. And one of the underlying messages of much of his writing is the idea of simplicity, of the idea that there is a lot of complexity in the day-to-day human existence. Uh, and so for the wild card this evening, I kind of wanted to reflect on something that happened to me over the weekend I was completely off the grid from eh, about the middle of Thursday afternoon to about the middle of Sunday afternoon. Went out camping in Haukwa River Valley with a bunch of old high school mates and we had tents and we had a fire and we had some pretty rudimentary kind of goings on and a bit of beer and a bit of this and a bit of that. But one of the things that showed up on Friday, which is our first kind of morning of our full day there, we kind of came to this realisation really early in the day that we're sort of staggering around trying to find something to do and something to occupy ourselves. And we soon put paid to that. Do you mean, when you say off-grid, do you mean just not having your phone or your computer? There was no reception. There was no internet. So no there reception. was no phone. There was nothing. There was no electricity. There was no running water. There was a drop pit which became increasingly smelly <laughs> as um, the campers in the campsite attacked it. And there should be an app for that. There would be. An app. <laughs> well, there should be, like, at least a little tub of eucalyptus oil for that. But, um... Yeah, when I say off-grid, Kate, I just mean that we were out in the woods and we had whatever we'd bought in... In the bush. In the bush. And it was about 25 minutes drive to the nearest kind of ping on your phone. And it was really, really lovely. Mm. And we all sort of sat around and we we caught up properly. Like, you weren't sort of sitting there saying, hey, that reminds me of this YouTube video <laughs> I saw. And, oh, hey, I'm going to put that on Facebook so it was fucking funny. What it was was really down to earth. And it was really interesting because it meant that you really had this ability to put all that other hyper-distraction away and focus on the people you're talking with. And it really, you know, a few of the guys when they got home on Sunday kind of were flicking messages through this little thread of having saying, you know, my family barely recognises me, I'm so calm, I've got, you know, no pulse rate almost, we're just... What do you think? I can remember the first time I did the Wilson's Prom Circuit and uh, it was four days and three nights, and which isn't a huge amount of time, but when we returned to Tidal River after three days of decompression, no phones, no computers, I was struck by how full-on even you know the cars and the people and the signs for the cafe were. Like <laughs> yeah. This wasn't particularly 
you know, this isn't the, being in the middle of the city, but even those three days away, mm. she, it decompressed enough to find that quite full on. Yeah. And it kind of made me think about how, you know, when we do live in urban contexts where there are just constant cars and constant TVs and sounds and adverts and people, mm. we've probably desensitized to it. You know, we've, yeah. we've, it's become normal, even though it's actually been quite full on on our psyches. Mm. Mm. Adam Grubb, is that something that. You, you often you did a sojourn a couple of years ago up to the desert in a quest to find a flamethrowing guitar from Mad Max Fury Road for me. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but a that lot probably would be the last time I was yeah offline for a while. Yeah, yeah, it's over a year ago. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm hopelessly online, mm. hopelessly, and and I, I really notice it. I, I mean, I normally have my phone on silent, but even just hearing a buzz when you're having a conversation with somebody totally is distracting mm. and t- and takes you off from focusing on that person and that conversation um so yeah i got a bit of work to do there yeah, yeah. last time i was well i've been working rurally and regionally over the last couple of years so i've been offline a fair bit and it's fine i love the city i have to mm. say uh and being connected but it's important to balance the two so you recognize the difference and are able to put your phone away and with the phones, I'm trying to work out with Dan how we can like get rid of our phones in the evening because we're like to- both totally addicted. Yeah. But the last time I was completely offline was actually I got stranded in a desert uh, in the Great Sandy Desert. Uh, with it was stupid, I drove down a sandy track um, with no reception and no food and no water and very far distance away from anybody. Luckily, we managed to dig ourselves out. Oh, but right. I quite appreciate being connected after that. That's a little bit. It's <laughs> just got a kind of a Wolf Creek element to it. Yeah, like, well, so we, we weren't in any kind of grave danger. Oh, potentially we were in some grave danger. Depend- yeah, no, so, I won't go there. So, Sam, I, you've, you've recently written a book about Thoreau. I don't even know if it's your first one because I know he's quite influential on your thinking. Now, Henry Thoreau, was, he, he's from a time before computers, from a time before, before smartphones, and yet he is, his most famous book, Walden, is about him uh, going to a cabin in the woods, getting away from it all. What would he have to say about uh, our hyperstimulation, do you reckon, today? Um, well, he was relatively critical of technology, or he at least, con- he, he, he conceived of technology as a tool that could be used well or misused. It's like mm. a knife. Um, you can cut tomatoes good use stab somebody bad use mm-hmm. so 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 too with <laughs> yeah. a com- com- computer or a phone um and yeah. the internet you know this is an extraordinary tool but it's very liable to being you know misused become mm. and, and and impact negatively on social life and human relationships yeah. so, so it's worth mentioning that on this camping trip there was this one beautiful moment um sort of deep into one of the evenings where a few of us may or may not have been under the effect of various stimulants where a friend brought out his little uh, drone that he had little and had the lights on and we sat there and we pondered about how amazing it would be to take a little amateur cheap drone back to like the 1950s and how mind-blowing it would be because for us that night that was about as advanced as it really got this drone flying around in the sky and doing these fake drops and, and hovering and above the fire. I picture you being really excited by that. We were, we were really thrilled and this was kind of like the last night there so for, for a couple of us who'd been there for a few days it was kind of like, God, that's just incredible. But it was almost... I've seen drones before and kind of like, oh yeah, the future's here. Duh. But when you're kind of out in the woods and you haven't had any kind of stimulation over several days other than some some beer and some food and some water and you know the odd bath in the bathing in the river 
something like that actually really does excite you. Mm. It actually kind of does dig into this childlike kind of, you know, back to the future type fascination, whereas on the day-to-day it might not. So that was the other advantage, I would say, of going out into the woods is yeah. that everything became thrilling. Do you know, when you first asked that question, when was the last time you went offline? I was like, oh, I've got this brilliant story. But then I realised it wasn't my story, it was a book I just read. Um, (laughs) 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 Which My Year Year Without Matches book, which is quite an extreme version of going So just for a second, you thought that you went and lived without any technology. (laughs) You'd incorporated that into your personal story in the bush. Just like snippets of that where she she does a certain walk or has a look at a view. And I was like, they're not my memories. (laughs) They couldn't. But we need to get her as a guest. That wasn't such an amazing book. Yeah. My year with it matches. Claire done. Claire done. Cool. She's so good. Perhaps you were getting confused, Kate, because there's so much input to your brain every day, oh being God. immersed in the internet and technology in the modern world. Yeah. That it can. And I it happens. I don't know. It might happen to you guys. Well, it happens to me quite often. Where I kind of go, oh, when was that thing that I did? And ah, oh, no, that was like CSI Miami. Or no, no, <laughs> no, no. As if I, I watched that I completely understand. <laughs> no. My, well, yeah, Game of Thrones. When was that time I took on... I um, remember I met that gnome. House Baratheon. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, yeah, but no, it was a really, really good weekend. And I would just encourage people to... Oh, so one of the guys there... So basically go camping with your friends go and camping get your drunk friends. and watch a drone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, one of the guys there, he made a point of saying that at home... Um, I don't know how frequently he does it, but he said that they will often, at, at midnight, he'll collect all the phones in the house and switch them off and put them in a box. And so all day Sunday, there is no yeah. phone, tablet, da 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 And he said when they do it, you know, they play Twister with the kids or they play Lego or they um, just go out in the garden and lie in the sun and all this sort of stuff. The stuff that we all used to do growing up as kids. You know, but you don't do it now. You sit there and like go, how can we get something to do? Oh, no, it's so bad. It's so bad getting into that passive scrolling, time-wasting... Oh, yeah. oh. I wonder what yeah. archaeologists will think one day of the grinding effect on our right thumb or the cartilage joint there from that scroll. That'll show up in an archaeological dig one day, much like the archers of the Middle Ages had hunchbacks. <laughs> Love little hunch thumbs. Yeah, perhaps I'm uh, <laughs> overthinking this just a little bit. <laughs> Um, we've got Samuel Alexander in the studio. You've got some stuff coming up. Do you, or, or if or you stuff like, to talk we, about. we haven't really brought it home to your to the books Let's you've written. If home. you want to give them, give talk them up. <laughs> Too kind. Well, we've mentioned um, the Diogenes book called "Deface the Currency: The Lost Dialogues of Diogenes," and we mentioned the Thoreau book, um, "Just Enough Is Plenty: Thoreau's Alternative Economics," both of which are available at the Simplicity Institute website. If anybody's interested, simplicityinstitute.org. I've and started the, the Diogenes one, and uh, him being very uh, li- lively and interesting character, and you've brought him very much to life. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well done. And we talked earlier about the culture jamming issue. If anyone wants to follow that project, it's called the Dark Sellers Project. And you can check it out at thedarksellers.org. Awesome. I've had a really fun show tonight. We will see you next Tuesday. But until then, please have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.